Thank you, everyone, for all of your patience as I transition from one way of recording podcasts to the other. The episode has been recorded already, the one that you're about to hear here. It's been recorded uh, the old way, so you're going to hear it's going to be smooth, just like all the other episodes have been, all the recent ones, because the ones in the beginning sounded a lot like this one's going to sound. So I got to talk real low as I do this intro. I just want to give y'all a few quick updates and a little bit about this particular podcast episode. So our guest this week is Monica. She is the host of the Invisible Not Broken podcast, and I met her. And um, on a Zoom call, we recorded on another podcast called This Is Not What I Ordered with Lauren Selfridge, who I've had the pleasure of being on her podcast before to talk about my experience living with herpes. And on this episode, we dive really deeply into a unique perspective of disclosure and rejection. This is not about herpes. It's not about her experience with herpes. We talk about her identity being disclosed and her ability being disclosed, as well as her chronic illness. And I cannot pronounce the name of what she said she's uh, living with, but it's very, uh, it's it's very unique. And what I found most interesting in our conversation is how she deals with this continuous non-consensual rejection um, of her body. Like her body is rejecting her ideas and somehow she just continues to redirect and keep going. And I thought this was a really inspiring experience to bring onto the podcast. And I wanted to share it with you all because I know there's someone, someone's going to be able to really resonate with this. Um, because it does, in fact, touch on how we view rejection about our herpes diagnosis because we can reject ourselves and we can be disconnected from our body. But what happens when our bodies are, dis- uh, are disconnecting from us or rejecting us? Like, we aren't our bodies. We're the electricity that runs through it. We're the personality. We're the essence of it. And so when that's not in alignment, this is what we deal with. So... Um, I wanted to give that disclosure at the beginning here. Um, we One of the bigger things here, not the biggest because the rejection piece is important. Um, she said something that I didn't put in the promo pieces. She said, it's really hard to be in this shell. And sex is a way to reconnect within it in a way that I can deal with it. And this touches back on our episode with Brenda Emily, where we talk about disabilities, people with disabilities not being represented, um, and then also they're, uh, they're just not being seen as sexual people. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Again, it doesn't sound exactly like this. This is me recording using my new format, so let me know how this sounds. I have to talk low because otherwise it'll be super loud, and I want to do that to you. <laughs> so enjoy this podcast episode. Let me know what you think. Again, please support our sponsors, betterhelp.com slash SPFPP and trylogic.com slash SPFPP. And when you go to checkout, use the code SPFPP in order to save 30% off of your STI, your first STI test kit. And for better help, it's 10% off of your first month of counseling. I keep saying therapy. I should say counseling. <laughs> All right. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a podcast that features resources that 
support people who are navigating some form of stigma, specifically around STIs and dealing with their diagnosis and navigating the world of dating, disclosure, and just going through the feelings of healing the emotions and the trauma that comes with a positive STI diagnosis. That was a little bit different than what everybody was used to. I probably thought I just had an automatic recording up by now. I hit that, plug it in, and then go into it. But nope, I just pulled that out of the top of my head. I was definitely <laughs> going to say pull that out of my head. I used it in my intro. I mean, I'm happy to, especially now. I need a few side hustles or something to work through this pandemic. <laughs> You get this where on my pie. So let me, I guess this is a good time for you to introduce yourself, Monica. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so step in and like all over your intro, your beautiful intro that you pulled out of your ass. That was amazing. I pulled it out of my head. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> I just find it funny that when you were on my show, your voice was like an octave higher than on your show. Like you got like super like very white there. It was awesome. Oh, damn. Very I can't believe you caught that. This is my trying to point out that I'm sober, actually, voice. That's what that oh, is. This monotone. I my voice lower so I sound sober? Uh, how much opioids and wine have you had? Oh, you, I do not want that answer. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to give the answer, like, mostly because I'm afraid that people will, like, hear it and be like, oh, it's fine for me to mix those two things. I have been taking these pills since I was 16, and I am much older than 16. I know exactly what I can do and what I can take, so do not try this at home, kids. I just think it was really funny that your voice went from, like, how I do my voice when I'm just chatting to, like, when I'm disciplining. Like, when I was a teacher, like, you'd be like, hey, kids, how are y'all? You know, let's chat. And then, like, one kid would be, like, causing a problem, and then I would, like, go into, like, military voice. We'd be like, what the fuck just happened there? How did the Disney character go from, like, fingernails across the chalkboard screeching cute to like oh discipline. oh my yeah, god yeah. <laughs> okay sorry I, introduction i'm monica michelle i run um i run a few podcasts but i run a podcast network called invisible not broken and one of my podcasts on that channel is called explicitly sick okay and can you give us a short overview of what explicitly sick is about as well oh so you, you're so cute that you think i have plans for things i love that you think that like i actually organize anything in my life um it is you sound so much like my my um co-host who runs her podcast she's like got a plan she knows exactly what her podcast is about she has a plan for the network i'm like god i love you you're so energetic um so i basically just talk to other people who have disability and chronic illness and i call it explicitly sick because i swear a lot um and because i think that there's a weird, you know, we talked about before toxic positivity and inspiration porn around people who are disabled um, and chronically ill. And this is not about that. Like, it's fine to to be inspiring. It's fine to um, to find the upside to things. But this is really about what life is like with chronic illness and disability, even down to the super dark sides and the funny sides. And yeah, there's a lot of snark. I am a very snarky bitch, so it. It is very unfiltered. It is very unprofessional. So if you are looking for very white, smooth voice, I'm sorry. This is my voice. I, I know that it gets a lot of shade on our on our comments, but it's my voice. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so for people who might be listening, yes, this is not a podcast about herpes or STIs. However, there is a really powerful connection to be made from Monica's experience and 
the experience that we may have in processing rejection, right? Um, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, Monica, what you you have chronic illness? We met through the "This Is Not What I Ordered" podcast with Lauren, and Lauren had us on a panel actually a couple of hours ago, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it happened just like that, right? She hit me up. I was like mid drinking. I was enjoying my dinner. I had a burger and fries. I'm like voice messaging her while I'm eating and drinking my bourbon. And we were just available now for us to have this conversation. So on that call that we had on the panel that we had, uh, what came up was the opportunity for me to ask you a question. And after your podcast that I heard that you did with Lauren, there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of challenges that you had to deal with, uh, with your chronic illness and with your chronic illness, you were still able to do things. You were able to do things that a lot of people, I would say, mentally may talk themselves out of doing like you did what you had to do. And in a sense, you know, people who can do them, you know, they get to do them, but they just choose not to. And so one of the things that I wanted to bring you on here to ask you about specifically was your experience with rejection. Now, having chronic illness and I'll have you when you go into answering this question, if you don't mind, can you give us a little bit of background on what your illness is and your disability, like what happens with your body um, so that we can give listeners an idea of what we're talking about here. But uh, the question that I asked you on that call was, how do you process rejection from your own body? Because it seems like you wanted to do things and your body just would not let you. So that's the question. Big question. Let's start with your condition. Let's start with what some of your hindrances are. And then we'll go into how you have been dealing with the rejection that you've experienced in your own body. Test for it. 
Okay. And now, so when, and you mentioned uh, the first condition where the connective tissue doesn't work and you said that your brain could fall on your spinal column, you're not experiencing those symptoms, right? Like what your okay. symptoms are is the dislocation. Yep. So the um, thing is, is you just don't know what each day is going to be. So like if you're like traditionally disabled, the way that people think about wheelchair users and disabled, you think, okay, they know what their limitations are. Like, cool, my legs don't work, but I know my arms work. So that's where you get those like porn, porn like inspiration porn where you see like the person who's like, I'm at the gym every day lifting my body weight from my wheelchair. And those are cool stories. Don't get me wrong. I'm just jealous is what that comes down to. I am a very jealous fish about that because I don't know if my shoulders are going to dislocate. I have no idea every time I move if I'm going to end up in bed for like, so the reason I'm in bed right now was I vacuumed my house. I had one day where I could stand and walk. So I was like, cool, I'm going to do some chores. I know I'm so boring. Um, but my vacuum fell and it fell on my ankle and my ankle dropped an inch because the vacuum fell on my ankle. So it just went, my ankle bone just slipped all the way down and we can't get it back in too. So it's like, I never know when I'm going to be put back in bed for a day, a month, three months a year like mm -hmm. we don't uh, and like or i can chew something hard my jaw will dislocate oh wow um that's mad for a minute so that's that's kind of nice for my family but um i have two permanent dislocations like my rib is permanently dislocated um and now my tibias are starting to be permanent we can't get them back down again so there's some permanent things that i have to deal with but there's a lot of unknowns so like i can't just go oh yay well my my legs don't work but i'll go in a wheelchair up this mountain no problem and i, I can't do that because my arms can come out yeah when you and i and lauren were talking earlier um you mentioned walking and you mentioned like uh sort of a perceived notion of a person in a wheelchair's uh, abilities as well. So you said something about how you walk and the pain of your feet and how the bones dislocate as you walk and it's super painful. So you can walk, but it's super painful on the days that you're feeling good and you can walk, right? Yeah. Okay. And go ahead. So you have what we would call, I think you used this word once, uh, some sort of a privilege to where you don't necessarily look disabled because yeah. you have, yeah. what'd you call it? Invisible illness. Invisible illness. So you have good days, you have bad days. Mm -hmm. On your good days, you're able to get away with functioning in society as, you know, just whatever a normal person looks like or is but you're still navigating a challenge you don't know when your heart rate is going to spike from 40 to 60 beats per minute to 200 beats per minute and then you got to get the f up out of here mm -hmm. 
the next step I take is going to knock my, my ankle completely out of socket. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, so, like, my other co-host was sitting chatting with, or he was calling me up, he was going to come over to my house, and I just was like, oh, cool, I just made some soup. And I turned, like, just a little bit to look at the kitchen, and my tibia came in front of my kneecap. So I was like, boom, on the ground. Like, if any motion can set me out. The big joke in the house was I was scrolling Pinterest, and I just looked at my finger scrolling Pinterest. Mm. When you and I were texting earlier, you mentioned, hey, can we just hop on the phone because I don't want to dislocate my fingers. Like, that's how serious it is, right? Yeah, it's a very different, different way of living. It's a very different world. And it's very, um, it's a very surreal experience. You're always shifting sand. Like, you don't know what the next minute, second, hour, month is going to bring. So it makes it very hard to plan a life. Mm-hmm. Speaking of planning a life, so... You said very poetically, like in who you are, when you talk about yourself, and this is another thing that I admire about you, you talk about yourself, you don't talk about yourself in a way that really describes your physical appearance or your ability, your mobility, or your chronic illness or your disabilities at all. You are a storyteller. As you sip the wine, oh, we're about to get a real good response to this one. So you being a storyteller. So like a lot of people, when we ask the question, who are you or who am I? It's really challenging for us to answer that question for a number of reasons. And even if we answer the question, I don't think that we really answer the question because we do often uh, go to our associations or our labels or our uh, abilities, our privileges and you came to Storyteller. How did you get from wherever you were in the development of your identity and going through your trials and tribulations with the battles that you faced to being able to say, I am a storyteller? Because you've had a lot of different jobs. And you, I, do, I still do. <laughs> I have found jobs that I do all the time. Aside from raising you know, two teenagers and uh, a whole bunch of animals, yeah. <laughs> Um, to be fair, I was raised by a therapist. So my father was an MFCC and I was raised in the seventies. So being a beautiful girl was never going to be good enough in my family. That was not a thing to aspire to. And I'm raising a daughter right now. And, um, I'm kind of crazed at the idea of like how much attention we spend to like that physical outside idea. Um, especially for like ovary owners, like, do you know what the world does to beautiful women? Like it's not, it's not a benefit a lot of the times. This is not a thing that's super great. So I learned pretty quick not to put the eggs in the basket of being beautiful. Like that was never going to be good enough. That was never going to be the thing I was going to put my focus or attention specifically on. And in my family, it was always storytelling. Like uh, we were readers. I, I was an only child. So the entire house is books. Like, and in my house, like if there's a closet, it's full of books. If there is a shelf, there are books on it. Like we would sit around and talk about politics and the dinner table was politics, jokes, and stories. My dad's a writer also. I'm a writer. Uh, my mom's a poet. You earned your supper by being intelligent and interesting and interested in the world. Like curiosity was the number one trait to grab to. We had talked before that I, I tried a lot of things and my body rejected those ideas. Like I, my body made decisions for me. It did not ask me. (laughs) I wanted to do certain things, and they kept being taken away, and I had to redefine who I was. And I was lucky enough that that started really young, so I had to make some really clear delineations on 
what I do is not who I am, which Lauren says all the time, and I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Um, not that any of this is easy. I, I mean, I say it blase because I've said this a million times. I run my own podcast. I talk about this all the time, and it sounds like I'm okay with it, and I'm not. I mean, just to be super honest, I get dark. I get depressed. I cry. I get very dark on this sometimes. But the fact is, is like, I have to remind myself on who my core is. And then that core, if you know what that is, like for you, you're really good at jumping past people's barriers. Like you are really scary good at seeing a person and really seeing them beyond what they're trying to project to you. That's amazing. And that's something that no matter what your abilities are by any, any constraints there are, that is something that you can know about yourself and turn yourself into something else. You know, if you know your core values and who and what you are. So I learned that I'm a storyteller and that has taken many different shapes. Mm -hmm. Throughout your experiences with your body rejecting the ideas that I like, the, I really, really love the way that you put that, um, your ideas. Can you give us a few examples there of what some of these rejections have been? That's funny because my cousin just called me out on this. We're a very close family, and she was like, you refer to your body as an it. Like, you always refer to your body in third person. It's, like, really weird. Um, so I started as a ballerina. Um, that was my fucking universe. That was everything. I breathed, slept, ate ballet. That was all I was. Um, all the eating disorders that went with it. Um, but yeah, it was very unhealthy. Um, if, like, the 16-year-old me saw me now, they'd be like, oh, hell no. Go, lose that. But, um... Yeah, that's another thing that I've been trying to accept as well. Uh, but then um, we didn't know what I had, by the way. I was not diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos until I was 33. So I lived with dislocations daily and told I was crazy um, through my teen years. Um, the doctors actually almost put me in a mental institution because I couldn't walk and I was in so much pain. And they're like, we don't see what's wrong. It's fine. Um and they just diagnosed me with fibromyalgia out of, like, and I do have that as well, but it's just out of a pure, we don't know what the fuck is wrong. Um, but I do also have that as well. But um, it was very hard to live with something for so long and not have a name for it, and I wasn't following the fibromyalgia trajectory. I, things were way more severe and dire. And then, you know, I finally got the, the diagnosis, and I found out that, oh, yeah, I was dislocating a whole lot. And we didn't realize that, like, when I was bending my knee, my kneecap was on the side of my leg. So um, what happened was I was um, very anorexic and very bulimic. And so I had stress fractures up and down my legs um, from like not eating right and from all the, uh, the other issues I was done with and I was dislocated. So they just put me in casts from my hips to my ankles and like, you're done dancing. That's it. And so I had like four more surgeries and they told my parents that either I could stop dancing then at like 16 or 17 and I wouldn't be able to walk after a I think they said 40. I think they were like, she could probably stay walking until she's 40 or she keeps dancing and she won't walk after she's 20. And so I chose dancing. My parents were smarter. <laughs> they're like, yeah, you're done. That's, that's, that's it. And um, actually the weird thing was they were pretty right. Like um, I became almost completely, um, I'm way more reliant on my wheelchair after 40 than I was before I ran a business in my thirties. Um, so yeah, it's a very non-consensual relationship I have with my body. After that, I, I got serious about school. I was supposed to be a teacher. Um, I had a son a lot earlier than I was expecting to have a child. Um, so to keep us afloat, uh, financially, I started a jewelry business. So I went to graduate school at night. I raised my son, and I ran the jewelry business and worked as a bench jeweler to keep 
yeah, food going and, and to recover her husband. I, I took classes at night and then my hands didn't work. So I had to stop doing the jewelry. I cut through school. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of stuff that, that, you know, life also happened. I got divorced. So I had to quit graduate school and, um, my now husband was my best friend at the time, and he knew how much I loved taking pictures. And my wrist still could hold a camera. I couldn't hold the torch steady, but I could hold a camera. And he's like, you know what? You're really happy when you do shoots. How about I fund your business? I will. I'll get you started. Um, I'll buy you a camera, and we'll get a website going, and you do photography. And so I didn't have to pay him back. I mean, that wasn't the only reason, but it was like it was like a business decision. And um, so I did the photography um, until I couldn't, and that's when I really kind of. Um, it was weird because, like, that whole time, there wasn't a lot of shame around my illness. But once I had to start using visible things like canes, I got really intensely ashamed. And I was terrified of having to go into a wheelchair. And I waited, like, five extra years to get into a wheelchair. But I was so scared that I'd be rejected by my clients, that they would see me as weak, as someone who couldn't do the photo shoot, as something to be pitied. But I, that broke me. That, I'm pretty strong. I mean, I've been a single mom. I, I've been through I've been through a lot. And I've always been like, yeah, I got this. I got this. I'm okay. I've been, like, housing insecure. I've been very, very poor. I've been, like, I've been through sexual assaults many, many, many times. I've done all of these things. But that's the thing that I felt broke me as far as, like, fear of rejection was that I built this business from a credit card. And, you know, my husband's infusion as a friend. But I built that whole business. And it was the first time I really let myself dream big. Like, this is something that I could see myself doing. I can be this person. I can be a business owner. I can be a photographer. I can do something I love more than anything. I can storytell in this way, and I get lots of scratches behind the ears, and I feel really good about myself. And I kept dreaming bigger and bigger, and I kept hitting each of those dreams and each of those those levels. But then, like, my body's like, yeah, we're, you're done. And I couldn't stand the idea of being rejected by, like, the business community, by my friends that I made in the business community, that like my clients would be like, hey, you're not good enough anymore. I don't have any updates on therapy this week because my therapist had a family emergency and had to go on a leave of absence. But what I can tell you is that between day one and day, I guess it'd be like uh, 60. Yeah. Damn, it's been like nine weeks that I've been in therapy now and I'm really impressed and excited about it and the fact that I'm noticing changes in myself and how I do things, one of which was integrating my personal training account with my Something Positive for Positive People account and restructuring a relationship with my dad. Um, If you've listened to the episodes, uh, I did like four episodes on like the healing experience that I had personally where I journaled about uh, a pattern in my life of getting excited and then expecting to be disappointed and how that stemmed with or stemmed from the relationship that I had with my father. Um, yeah, this was this wouldn't have been possible had it not been for BetterHelp www.betterhelp.com slash SPFPP if you want to get that 10% off your first month. And um, I've had personal strides uh, that I thought that, I mean, I thought I didn't need a therapist. I do this self-help stuff. I do this podcast. I talk to enough people to have my own 
image, my self-image reflected back to me. So it's like, what do I need a therapist for? Don't they do this? Well, the fact that he doesn't know me, it's kind of like you're setting the foundation of someone new to get to know you so that you can more so tell yourself about yourself because we have these roles that we play around the people that we're with on a consistent basis. And if we're not able to meet anyone new, we don't really get that new perspective. So we can just operate uh, in a way that other people have expected us to and in a way that we expect ourselves to for long periods of time. And it takes for someone close to us who we let in to be able to let us know like, hey, well, you say you want to do this, but here's what you're actually doing. There's a conflict there. So I've been very appreciative of my therapist to this point for getting us here. And I'm really looking forward to him coming back because I got some stuff to tell him, y'all. And hopefully we'll be able to continue to share, you know, some of my own strides on the podcast as well. And I hope that you have yours. I hope that you try better help out. It's www.betterhelp.com slash SPFPP to save 10% off of your first month of service. Coming out of quarantine, or I mean, I think we're going to end up heading back into one, uh, our sexual health may or may not, I don't know what to really think about this right now, because you think that because of quarantine, perhaps we're quarantined with someone that we're consistently sexually active with, or because we're quarantined and not everyone's actually quarantining, we can have a variety of sexual partners, but um, perhaps getting chest, getting chested, (laughs) that'd be an interesting statement. Perhaps getting tested may be a little bit challenging for someone. So we have our other sponsor, Let's Get Checked. If you visit www.trylgc.com slash SPFPP and select from one of the variety of SCI testing kits, uh, the there's one um, that includes herpes testing. And I didn't know this, but um, the, the way that I got my results back was um, they tested for shedding. So when I got my results back, it didn't say positive for HSV2 genitally. It said non-reactive. And I took this as, oh, my God, I don't have herpes anymore. I'm not going to do this podcast no more. I'm going to go out and uh, just live my best life in the way that I don't have herpes. I'm just kidding. I didn't actually think that I knew to ask questions. But um, I was able to connect with the customer service reps and uh, not customer service reps. I spoke to a I spoke to a licensed physician about this word non-reactive because it, I didn't get it. I didn't, it didn't make sense to me. Um, something said negative, non-reactive. And then this one said that for herpes and it just didn't make sense to me. So I asked and we talked for a bit and come to find out they test your urine to see if you are shedding or if you're um, if you're having an outbreak. So I imagine that if you're someone who is having an outbreak or you think you're having an outbreak and you purchase the SCI testing kit that includes herpes, which if you use the code promo code, SPFPP at checkout, you'll save 30% off of that. And that's a lot to save, especially off of these SCI testing kits, because I hear people spend upwards of several hundred dollars on getting tested for things that doesn't even include herpes. Now, if you're someone who gets tested regularly and COVID put a damper in your testing routine, like a lot of people, um, then there are um, 
options that don't include herpes, and you get tested for, you ready? Syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichum, whatever, vagina. Ah, I don't know. I've always missed this word up. Dang it. <laughs> there, there's 10, so there's up to 10, but at least you could get tested for the main ones that are curable and HIV. Uh, so, yeah, just visit Trilogic. That's T-R-Y-L-G-C. And that's Trilogic without the vowels. So T-R-Y-L-G-C dot com slash S-P-F-P-P. And when you go to checkout, after selecting your STI testing kit, your first purchase will get you 30% off. Please, please, please support these sponsors because they're supporting the podcast. And during the pandemic, I know a lot of people are, uh, you know, struggling for money and such. So the donations have gone down significantly so um this is a way that you can support the sponsors if you're in need of either of these services um your support to them supports the podcast all right y'all now back to monica the connection i want to make there is in how you dealt with your rejection and this is more of a self-rejection i like that you said you uh call your body and it you refer to your body as its own entity and you oversee the body you're the pilot of the body essentially right what i want to bring home here in terms of uh your story with rejection how you experience rejection versus how someone who is navigating a herpes diagnosis for instance may view rejection is that your rejection is ongoing like it's an ongoing thing your body is essentially fighting you. And this is where you are 100% of the time in your body. And whereas a person who is living with herpes, when we experience rejection, oftentimes like we're rejecting ourselves. It's not our bodies that it's necessarily rejecting us. It's us rejecting ourselves or the uh, rejection is external because it's coming from a potential sexual partner who just doesn't want to... Um, give us what it is that we're asking of them, right? So in your case, dealing with the rejection of your body, uh, how do you continue to put yourself in positions to be rejected? Like, what is it that you do? Because someone with herpes can just stop disclosing to people. Whereas with you, all of these rejections, and we'll we'll get to the external where people began to see your disabilities and uh, doctors not believing you. But let's start with the internal rejection uh, that you're experiencing from your body. <laughs> there are reviews and people are mean and fuck 
think nails on chalkboard has been used before. But, you know, those are all, like, the things that silence you, right? Like, your story isn't good enough because you're this. Your story isn't good enough because you sound this way. Your story isn't good enough because you don't sound educated. There's all these things that are used to silence people. And I guess part of it's I'm a bitch, and someone says stuff to me that's like, shut up. I'm like, okay, let's tango. (laughs) Let's chat. So that's a thing. Also, I've had a lot of unique experiences, and I don't think any of them were wasted. Even the things I fell on my face and failed at, they're all important because I learned so much from teaching. There's so many lessons to be learned in trying things and then sharing them. Earlier you mentioned focusing on what you have to give and you give that. That's a way that you continue to go despite the experiences with rejection because I think that we fear rejection because of what we have to lose in the event that we're not able to get what we desire, what we want. And in your experience, what I'm hearing, I heard you say give, I heard you say share. So to me, what that means is that you are looking at your gift, going back to who you are. You're a storyteller. You have stories to tell. You're not a story taker or a story getter. You're a storyteller. So you're giving yourself to the world around you and despite your body being like okay no 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 you're taking the nose is more of a redirection of where to focus your giving yeah and also a challenge for creativity there's a thing about writing where neil gaiman's one of my favorite writers and he's always saying like constraints are not a bad thing if you're just told to write a book you're like i don't fucking know okay that's a blank page that is a scary 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 blank page what the fuck am i gonna do And then he's like, but if you have, like, a topic, and, like, you know, like, Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss was given a challenge to write an entire book with 50 words. Cat in the Hat or Jump Pop Pop. It was one of those two. But he wrote the book, and he's just like, that's a constraint. Let's see what I can do in this little corral. And the corral is not necessarily the worst thing in the world because it limits your choices. So, like, I mean, I'm sure we're going to discuss romantic partners. Being disabled and being a single mom who's disabled, your partner choices can get very Like when you're bed bound, here's some things you can do when nothing else works. Like 
based on Pilates and um, yeah. Anyway, so I've considered a lot of things, but like it really does change things. Like I'm, I'm not going to be a football star. That's out. I'm five foot three. I'm never going to be a basketball player. Like there's a lot of things that are, are very, you know, constrained and the constraints can really break creative, um, creative decision-making. Mm-hmm. So now we're, now that we've gotten into the external uh, layers of rejection, can we talk about the experiences that you had once your disability became uh, visible, once people were able to know that you were disabled? What were some of the experiences with rejection that you had after you sort of disclosed them? So I, I'm not heterosexual. So like coming out of that closet felt very similar to coming out of out of disability closet. You know what's crazy like, is I was contemplating on like when and how to bring it up because you mentioned that yeah, earlier in uh no, one of my spouses was a wife. Yes. Okay. I honestly do not have the memory to lie. I do not have that like mental capacity to bullshit anyone. It's not there. I cannot remember what I would tell anyone, so fuck it, I'll just tell anyone anything. Like and I don't have a filter, let's be honest. Like from thought to mouth is like I, I don't even know if I've said it until it's out, so I'm not going to be able to, like, keep anything away from anyone, so no, don't worry about asking me anything, I don't care. Perfect. Um, yeah, you don't have to, so, <laughs> I feel like you have to be gentle here. So, you came out twice, you came out as disabled, and then you came out as... Great question. Um, I guess bisexual is probably the easiest one, but as far as, like, who I'm attracted to, women are way more my thing. Um, my husband is an amazing person who just kind of went beyond, like, what my general type was. And I'm head over heels for him. Um, and sorry, like, I watch The Magicians, and I'm like, you know what? Yes, the entire cast. Absolutely, yes. No problem. Like, oh, my fucking God, it's a lot of pretty there. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's, that's probably the easiest definition, I guess. Okay. So, yeah, there's there's that. And that was really, um, that was hard. I thought that it was going to be an easier come out thing. That was in the 90s where, you know, like, Ellen came out, and you had a few girl bands come out, and then you had, like, some movies that were really bad, by the way, like super bad, but they didn't make the lesbians murderers. Wait, 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 wait. We're not saying super bad was a bad movie. We're saying there were some movies. There were some movies that came out at the time that were lesbians that were like, oh my God, did you ever hear of a plot? Was that a thing that you'd ever considered a plot? Um, But the lesbians weren't murderers and they weren't insane. And the, the end goal was not desperate suicide or murder. So we were all pretty excited about that change in the world but I didn't get the support that I thought I would get on it and the thing is is I I was called lipstick femme at the time I guess that was like I don't know if that term is in use anymore it's been a while since I've been at a club it's been a minute so it's always like who's the straight girl with all of you all so my success with women was pretty bad (laughs) it was not a high level of success so yeah there is there is a lot of that and um I fell head over heels for a woman in college and we ended up moving in together and I got sicker I got really sick it was like beyond what I'd been in many years I had some years of like things are pretty okay everything hurts and just to kind of explain what it's like my pain level every day is around an eight so like what they you know when you go into a a, a ER they're like what's your pain level and they're like okay are you this is the worst pain you can imagine I live at two steps below that every minute every day um, at the time in college, I probably lived in a six or a seven every day. So it's like, I could fake it. I'm really good after ballet of keeping a stoic face. I'm pretty good at like, if you don't know me, you probably won't know something's bad. 
but we lived together. So she did know things were bad and I was getting a lot worse really fast. And we were young. We were, we were kids. Like we were just in our early twenties. And, um, so I was not crying. That was more of like a stomach thing. <laughs> I'll let you know when I cry. Um, we've been getting it for like two or three years and I thought we were going to be like together forever. <laughs> you know, that cute little, like adorable, like warm and fuzzy, like everything's going to be great. Um, but she said she just couldn't handle it. She, she was like, look, I, I don't want to do this. I, I, I could see where this is going and I don't want to do this for the rest of my life with you. Like, you're too sick for me. It was basically, and you know, like when you're dealing with rejection, it's not like, it's like, you are not good enough for me to deal with the external is what I heard. And I mean, that was rough in every possible way because her name was the thing on the lease. And I was a graduate student and she was working. So I had no money. She had money. So that's where I ended up housing insecure for like four months. Wow. I didn't yeah. expect that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't ready for that I one. I, I was I like, know, whoa. Like, I'm the type of person like, ah, bisexual, housing insecure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I ended up in um, a very crunchy situation mm. for about three to four months where I had no address. I had no, you know, I, I would just, like, move from person's house to person's house to person's couch. I wouldn't stay at any place for more than three days because I'm a lot. I am a lot to deal with. And I didn't want anyone to have to do that for more than a few days. So I did that. I slept in my car. I slept at people's houses. I probably shouldn't have, but it was a place to sleep. Mm. Um, I went on dates with people that I probably shouldn't have gone on dates with because it was a place to eat. Um, it, was, it was definitely a experience I'm glad I had. I would never want my kids to do that. <laughs> it was definitely an important experience. Now, you mentioned assault earlier that you had been sexually yeah. assaulted i'm making the assumption here that it was around like this time where it was kind of no. like okay no and I'm, I'm fine with talking about it. it does not bother me to talk about it. um it started when i was five um and the last time i was in a situation and this is multiple people so it's like it's actually hard for me like, i was trying to explain to my my husband i was like you know the weird things i don't even remember a lot of it and i don't remember all the people who were involved with all of this um, it just kind of like ended up shedding away in some really strange ways. It made me who I am, but trauma is weird. Like trauma is like grief. Like it's these like tidal waves that come up that like pull you under. And then I guess this weird flat sea sometimes. And then there's like a sneaker wave that just comes up and knocks you on your ass. Um, the last time I experienced sexual assault was when I was 21. And that was uh, with a co-teacher. And now I feel like an asshole for bringing it up because it didn't tie in right there. Well, because I was like, oh, so you put yourself in these situations because you had to eat, and that was going to kind of segue into just like you <laughs> needed a place to stay. About that is like, how do we define? Um, it's like that. Like we've all been talking about as a household, um, because you know I'm raising a teenage son. And I'm raising a teenage daughter. And those are two very important conversations to have. And something that is really challenging to discuss consent. And if you've listened to, like, the Me Too movement and you listen to a six-month Anasari talk, it's one of the most com important conversations we've had as a culture about sexual assault. Because he did not technically assault her. And she's very clear about that. She's like, he didn't assault me. I just didn't see it a way out. And that's where the, the idea of um, listen for the no changed to enthusiastic yes. So were those situations that I was in where I was going places out with people, staying with people, that it wasn't the best thing in the world? Probably, no, I wouldn't define it as assault, but I wouldn't define it as an enthusiastic yes either. And that's a conversation we all need to have is like, 
you know, just because someone's not screaming, no, they should be, if you're going to have sex with someone, they should be screaming out. Like, there should be no doubt in your mind how into this this physical experience someone is before you go that next step. Like, that should be obvious. And honestly, everyone who has not known what enthusiastic yes looks like, you really need to do your research because, trust me, you will not have to ask that question. Like, you should, but, like, you will know. And if you don't know, believe me, you are not as good as you thought you were. So taking it back to the disclosure piece of disclosing your sexual identity and Uh your disability were these... You said these were similar. What ways were they similar? What ways were they different? Okay, well, uh, let me go right to the heart of that. Um, For my family, for my parents, and they are, like, Berkeley liberal. So they have tons of gay friends. Like, all the gay friends. I never thought it would be a hiccup. I was like, yeah, dude, I like girls. (laughs) Did you not notice, like, what posters are on my wall? Did you not notice that I took all the comics and looked at Blondie the whole time? Really, does this not click? But they were horrified. Like, my dad had the hardest time with a lot of this. It's not because he's homophobic. What it was is he had an idea of what my life was going to look like. And he thought it was going to look like a path that he could follow. You know, it was not something he didn't understand. He could understand his daughter grows up, his daughter goes to college, his daughter meets a nice boy, his daughter gets married, he gets to dance at her wedding, and then she has babies, and she keeps working because he's a modern guy, and everything's going to be great. It wasn't that he didn't like that idea of girls, but he had a hard time with was gay was the biggest insult he could imagine when he was growing up like when he was growing up you call a man gay you call a boy gay in the neighborhood he grew up in that was dangerous you could get beaten to the living hell if someone thought you were gay in his neighborhood and so for him it was a fear of i would be in danger that i would never have a life that he could follow through and understand that I wouldn't have babies, like somehow my parents really had this idea I was going to have kids. Um, it was very important to them. Um, but it was it was very much they needed me to follow a life that they could feel like they could follow along with, and that my dad was scared for my safety. He was scared I could beat up. He was scared that that I would have a dark secret of life that I couldn't live in the open. Mm. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. When you had your disability and your parents had to know that. And when you began to develop your symptoms for your chronic illnesses, what was that disclosure process like? So that was, that was harder on my mom. The physical stuff broke her in a lot of ways. And we had a lot of, a lot of deep, intense talks around this because she hates to see me in pain in a way that she can't be there when I'm in pain. And she's had to get better at it because she's like my number one caregiver and driver until COVID hit. Like she was the one who had to be, in the rooms for things. And I was at first diagnosed with lupus. That's the first thing they thought I had. And they're like, you have 10 years to live. And it was really hard for my family, obviously. Ended up not being what I have. But the more of the rejection that I got was not so much from my parents. In that part, it was from my coworkers. It was from the people I had been working with and trusted. But I thought we were more than work friends. I thought we were like, those people that you meet, you're like, we're cut from the same cloth. You're my person. Your values align with mine. And one of my biggest values is treating owners of ovaries as humans. And I feel like the advertising and our entertainment owe us so much more. They owe us so much better. And they owe so many groups of people so much better. And they are not stepping up to it. The advertising is what we see. Like, what is the numbers that we see? It's like 5,000 ads a day or something. It's like insane how many ads we see. And it's insane how, like, two-year-olds can recognize the McDonald's arches more than they can recognize like any other thing. 
So it's not that they don't owe us. They owe us humanity because it is ingrained in our lives. And we had talked uh, before about Boys Life and Girls Life magazine. Or if you really want a good moment to understand how we are marketed to and how important it is, just pick up a magazine that is, like, dedicated to owners of testicles versus owners of ovaries. And it's, like, a very different thing. And we absorb those things. And I was working really hard to change that with other people. And when I got sick, it was crazy. Like, the people I thought were my friends, like, for real, were like, you're no longer able to do things for a cause. You're no longer able to be a part of these things, and I don't have the time to spend time with you if you're not working towards um, able to, physically able to be in this, this space doing these things that we were expecting you to do. Now, you're disclosing something to them that literally has absolutely no impact on them. They don't have to worry about catching it. I guess in the worst case scenario, if you find yourself in a situation where you, what, fall? Like, what what are some of the instances where they would be impacted to where that may scare them from wanting to continue to be close to you? So, it was more of risk on my part, losing my livelihood. I made a really big business. It's kind of crazy, like, how big the business got by the end. And my fear was always, if they know I'm sick and I can't finish this photo shoot, or the photo shoot has to be put into pieces, or I can't do my job the way I need to do it, will I lose my income? Will I lose, you know, if they think I'm sick, will they just not want to be around me? Um, What I have is not contagious, but it does change how people see me. It's very fast. I mean, just watching people's faces when they find out what I have and what my day is like, it goes from, oh, you're snarky and funny and cute to hang out with, to, oh, my God, your life must be a living hell. Like, it's such a switch Mm -hmm. from, like, I'm a person who's got interests. Like, I, I will happily talk to you about robots. I will happily talk to you about the newest NASA thing. I am a science nerd. I am a history nerd. I'm an art nerd. I am reading all the time. I have weird interests. So I'm either annoying or fun, but that's based on who I am and what I've developed. What I had no choice in, what my body did without possibly asking my consent, (laughs) suddenly decides how people see my value. So it changes the conversation from like, what I'm interested in to what's your day like? Oh my God, you must be, you must be is always a a big thing. And my favorite follow-up is if you only did, (laughs) things would be so much better. Yeah. And that really brings home the connection of like the the stigmatization of someone who may have an STI or something that is contagious compared to disclosing something to people that you know only impacts you like there's not really a difference you know people kind of have this misconception of what it must be like right but if you have an STI please forgive me if I'm, if I'm stepping on toes, just forgive no. me. Well, go um, ahead. Please forgive me. Um, I say this a lot. Um, but you didn't ask to have herpes. You did the thing that you were biologically hardwired to do. You had sex, and we are all biologically hardwired to have sex. We are biologically hardwired to find this fun and entertaining and interesting and a connection point. At no point were you like, did you sign up? Like, did you go, hey, yeah, that's, I want that. Like, I don't see my not asking my body to have a genetic disorder any different i mean like this is this is something that happened and i don't see that you signed up for this like having sex is not a shameful act this is 
you were literally hardwired to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're on that, um, I'm seeing that there's becoming more visibility for people who are living with disabilities uh, in terms of conversations around sex, because for so long, there's not been visibility for disability. Ooh, look at me almost rhyming. <laughs> but there's just not. Rap. There's I'm not. Try it. <laughs> I will suck and it'll be funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what. Do you have any comments or anything that you're able to share about uh, sex with a disability or oh, with yeah. chronic illness? Because you've had children and you still experience your body at pain level of eight. And so, I, I don't know. Like, it just seems like there's a, there's just no, there hasn't been historically any, like, recognition of people with disabilities to be sexual beings. Jesus, I would love for more TV shows to cover this. Like, I am so sick of seeing the same sex on TV. I am so fucking sick of it. Like, it's always, like, it's always so vanilla and so bland. And it's like, there's only one type of sex, right? It is blowjobs and it is, like, penis and vagina. That is what we can show on television. And, oh, my God, there's oral sex and it's with a a woman speaking oral sex, we need to put a disclaimer on this. This is this is not how this is done. Like it is so batshit insane that we like recognize only a few things as sex. And um there's definitely a, a shift in what is sex, right? Like what's intimacy look like, what is what is hot, and that's a really cool thing to rediscover. Is like, you know, as you're rushing towards sex as a teenager, being like, I am going to do what I saw on the internet. <laughs> that will be good, and that will be the way it goes. You really have to, like, slow down and take a beat and be like, okay. And especially for me, because, like, as I said, movement is very dangerous for me. So it is really a rediscovery, and it was really cool because it wasn't until, like, year four of diagnosis <laughs> before physical therapist was like, has anyone talked to you about sex? I'm like, no, apparently I'm just not supposed to have it. Like, <laughs> apparently I'm just supposed to, like, dislocate and then figure out how to put it back together, like, in a very sexy way. <laughs> That's fun. Um, so she was like, let's talk about bracing. So there's ways to use pillows to, like, brace your hip or to brace your knee or other things. But I'm really pissed that there's not more talk about sex in the disability community because our bodies are in this constant revolt against ourselves. Like, there's who we are and who we think we should be and an idea of what we want to do. And our bodies are like, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, fuck you. It's not going to happen. But, and it's a hard thing to be in this avatar. Like, it's really hard to be in the shell. This shell was definitely leveled up to a hard level. Like, not the hardest level. I will never find that. But this body is definitely advanced level to deal with. And sex is a way to reconnect with it in a way that I don't hate it. Like, there's a moment of pleasure, there's a moment where you're not in pain for, like, that wonderful 30 seconds is fabulous. Like, it's a moment where you're like, oh, I guess I do want to be on this planet. I guess I do want to be in this body. This is actually an awesome thing. Um, and that's a really important thing. And if we don't teach people how to reconnect with that, like, as either masturbation or as sex with partners or whatever sex looks like to you in a way that's consensual and positive for yourself and others, I think that's really missing. And I'm really pissed that the media doesn't take this challenge on and show sex with wheelchairs because, yeah, it's fun and it's hot. And um, there 
there's other ways to brace. There's definitely sex toys that are helpful um, depending on what your disability is. But if we don't start embracing that there's different different views of sex, different ways of intimacy, I think that's a real disservice. And if I could make Pornhub stop, I would. <laughs> that website pisses me off more than anything else. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, please teach young people like what consent looks like, that it's not supposed to be... Um, argued <laughs> or reluctantly given like we can have really good porn channels that show different kinds of sex that actually teach young people or older people who have not learned this yet ways to make yourself and others happy in a way that's not like demeaning in a way that someone else would find bad like there are so many ways that we can educate that that the media and porn channels are not taking advantage of well monica was that real enough for you that okay. was that was good <laughs> Um, my poor children <laughs> like, can you not talk about <laughs> uh, there's never it sounds like there's never a dull moment in your household that's awesome dull is not a thing around here <laughs> no, no I'm sure that over in the house I'll be like could you just look at your jaw again that'd be great we really enjoyed those 12 hours where you stopped talking that was fantastic <laughs> sorry visit that oh Monica, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. I'm going to leave you the floor for any closing remarks. And then how can people find you? Oh, InvisibleNetworking.com is the best way. It's where um, we have all, it's a network. So we have all of our podcasts there, um, including the history podcast for kids. And I swear I do not talk about sex on that one. Um, (laughs) That's robots and uh, and cool facts on history. and then also, I am an illustrator and a children's book writer. So, and again, no sex on that one either. Um, but you can find all of my my art projects there and Eva's podcast there. Um, what about your social media handles? You want people to follow you or anything? I always and all of our all of our medias are at the bottom. But um, Twitter, we're invisible not brk. If you want all of my um, probably pretty obvious liberal leanings, <laughs> and they're all right there. Uh, you can just like follow with the mop behind the bleeding heart liberal. That's what's to be expected. And then we have our Facebook group um, for it's visible, not broken. So if you are interested in being a part of that community, we are. The only rule is is what we sign off each episode on, which is be kind, be gentle, and in whatever way works for you, be a badass. Um, so if you are a part of that kind of community, uh, we are very, very, very welcoming. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you would like to donate to the nonprofit, we are at a place where we're offering therapy to people. We have a partner, BetterHelp, betterhelp.com slash SPFPP, and you can get the discount code there for a therapist, fill out the survey, the information, um, and get connected with a therapist at a discounted rate. And if you can't afford it or if uh, there is no way for you to be able to pay for it, then just please reach out to me. Don't hesitate to do so, and we'll do what we can in order to connect you to someone more affordable uh, we have a little bit of funds to be able to help with that and you can see all of this at spfpp.org or you can type in the full thing something positive for positive people.org don't know why you would do that but hey whatever floats your boat all right i can be found on social media at h on my chest till next time stay sex positive